In this episode, we consider the extent to which America's extreme and increasingly sticky concentration of wealth in its billionaire class may be dangerous or present problems for its economic and its political systems. And in part two, we'll take a look at the concept of freedom of speech, like real freedom of speech as it exists in the United States, in light of the story of Alexei Navalny in Russia, who was recently uh, died and dealt with issues of speaking out against the authorities in Russia. Hello, welcome to the Call Like I See It podcast. I'm James Keys, and riding shotgun with me is a man who, when it's time to make a move, he is always ready with a plan. Tunde Ogonlana. Tunde, are you ready to show the people why you stay scheming? Always, always. All right, all right. Now, before we get started, if you enjoy the show, I ask that you please hit subscribe, like on YouTube or whatever your, your whatever podcast platform you get this on. And that really helps us out as far as getting this, spreading this out and getting the word out to more people. Now, we're recording this on February 27th, 2023. And Tunde, we recently saw an item which pointed out that in 2023, inherited wealth of billionaires exceeded the earned wealth, so to speak, of billionaires, uh, which was notable, you know, from their numbers. It's not something that this particular entity had been tracking a long time, but something that was particularly notable in light of the, the amount of wealth transfer that it does reflect. So what was your reaction to seeing this? And, you know, really, uh, what about it did you find particularly notable? You know, it's uh, very interesting to me, I think, as someone who deals from a professional standpoint in the areas of wealth, financial planning, so on and so forth. Um, and, and also just as an American entrepreneur, the idea of, <laughs> of building and creating wealth is always, you know, something that's that's not far from our minds. And um, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that, um, you know, it was an interesting thing, you know, 2023. I mean, just to state the, the kind of main stat and the main point of that article was to bring to light the idea that 2023 was the first year. Um, that we had more um, uh, billionaires created in the United States through inheritance um, and not uh, through actual, you know, the, the, the people themselves creating that wealth through their own entrepreneurial endeavors or investments and things like that. So I think what it represents, which is interesting, is just, um, you know, it's kind of, I think, reconfirms because I don't think this is the first um, sign of this kind of history somewhat repeating itself. But it reconfirms this idea that we're back to a certain type of imbalance in wealth in our country that we haven't seen since the Gilded Age, you know, roughly about 120 years ago or so. And so, um, you know, that well, yeah, stuck it, out it, to me. You it, know, it's the increase in you know. So there, there's it's a lot. It's a lot of actual things compounding together because you have there's a large increase of the number of billionaires. The average wealth of billionaires is going up, and then how the 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 how these billionaires are getting their money is trending away from them earning it, and and, and trending towards, and you know, I guess there was a threshold uh, them in just inheriting it. And to me, it's it's the it, I, I see this as a payoff. You know, this is like the hard work. People have talked about it kind of on the fringes, and I say fringes not to say that it wasn't people haven't made a good point, but just saying that this isn't necessarily what you'll get from mainstream conversations, but just the concerted and ongoing effort that's been made to take apart kind of the New Deal economic order that existed uh, post World War II and existed really up until in, up until the seventies, nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, and when it was started to be taken apart, and that New Deal order did a lot to restrict the concentration of wealth and to, to make sure that this isn't to say that you just redistribute wealth for the purpose of redistributing it, but just to make sure that the, the, the spoils, the spoils created by society were distributed in what was considered to be a more fair way across the society. And the belief being that not, not just to do that out of the goodness out of your heart, but that that is, that protects and that strengthens things like market economies, because when you have uh, in monopolies, for example, the concentration of, of market power in one entity, which distorts and pretty much eliminates a free market in that sense, a competitive market, then 
you don't get optimal results. It undermines the concept of a, of a market of a market, you know, and you know, market being to to create competition in order to foster uh, higher higher pro- uh, uh, quality and lower price because entities are competing against each other. So when when you have one person with imbalanced power, it destroys that. And then also from a political standpoint, when you have actors with that can wield due to economic uh, due to their economic strength can wield. A, an exorbitant amount of power relative to everyone else, it's supposed to be everybody has one vote, then that distorts the political piece. So this was all, it was a concerted effort in the 1940s, 1930s, I should say, to to make sure that this type of thing wasn't happening. And then what basically since 1970s, 1980s, there's been a concerted effort to make it all happen again. And so it seems like it's working, basically. It's like it's, this stuff didn't happen by accident, basically. And we've seen, you know, from time to time, people talk about the estate tax or the top tax bracket of, you know, of, of top earners and so forth, or what income goes into that, capital gains and all that stuff. And so all of that stuff is honestly fights about this stuff that a lot of us aren't really picking up on, but some people are paying a lot of attention to because they have a lot at stake. Yeah, well, money and power like to find each other, so you're right. <laughs> um, those with, um, you know, the, the, like you said, a lot at stake will take it very serious to lobby um, the government and our legal system and the, and the financial system to, to, to slowly over time get rid of the guardrails that you've mentioned that were implemented after not only the kind of Gilded Age period, but yeah, the, the excesses of the Gilded Age uh, that partially, I mean, we also had just a lot of this stuff like we've talked in, in recent years, you know, a lot of that was a reaction to just the, the 100 years prior of the Industrial Age and this new way of societies kind of forming getting out of the old days of the monarchies and all that stuff and, 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 and feudalism in Europe. So this is kind of a long arc of continued, how are big societies going to organize each other in a way that, you know, the, obviously the wealth class that, 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 that likes to keep power and, 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 and money and, and keep it's that concentrated. together. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, yeah. just to, just well, to jump ver- in let me quick. just finish this though. Versus well, I want you to go, I want you to go but I want to throw one yeah. thing in for you to, to go on. It's, it's almost, it's two competing worldviews that we see and, and that you see the, the worldview of like the oligarchy. And then you see the world worldview of more of a representative democracy type of thing where people where, where all men have a vote or all people have a vote and everybody can can participate in the in the spoils of society and also in the leadership of society versus the few. The, the, those that control all the resources get to, 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 to have the spoils and they get to control the, the actual leadership. So but go ahead. I just wanted to throw that that at you while you were. Yeah. And I think what, what we've seen in that arc is. The idea of finance, um, especially starting in the 1800s, outpacing um, kind of the strength of actual just pure brute force. So, for example, you know, a guy like Genghis Khan could 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 go across Asia and and Central Europe with with a lot of brute force, with better warriors. You know, the guys on the horseback that could shoot arrows, you know, back to front (laughs) and all that stuff. And that he could overwhelm his opponents through dominating them by force. And what we've had in the last 200 years with kind of financial engineering, fractional banking, all that, uh, you know, people have begun, and, and this kind of even from a nation state, um, we, could, we could even refer to things like economic hitman, this idea that through economics, we can, we can dominate the landscape, not just through brute force. And I think to your point about um, these have been topics on the fringe of our discussions as society. And again, uh, to your point, not fringe like crazy but just that not a lot of us are paying attention because these are boring things, right? It's not exciting to talk about, you know, financial uh, regulations. It's not exciting to talk about tax codes and, and, and how money is kind of confiscated from people and, and pushed back up into the system yeah. to things like public schools and fire uh, departments and roads and bridges. So particularly these are the because, things that just adding real quick, particularly because these are yeah. a lot of ty- a lot of these are chess moves. They're not like people see the first the checkers move like, oh, you raise the tax, then, you know, the government collects this much money. But actually the or you lower the tax, the government collects this much money. Like that's the first order of, of the effect. But a lot of these regulations have several orders of effect. And yeah. the most interesting things actually are two or three steps away from the initial whatever the government did with the tax rate or something like that. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing too, is just the marketing and how we use language, right? Like the idea of an estate tax um, 
sounds different than when you say a death tax, right? <laughs> it, it's 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 a little simplicity, but it works, right? I mean, we have yeah. how many Americans, and, and and there's some interesting stats. I mean, one is I wanted to share before we keep moving too far is Forbes had the amount of billionaires uh, in 1987 at 140. And in 2023, that number was 2,640. So when I did the math, that's an 18 times increase in 36 years. But if you look at the wealth of the bottom half of Americans, which is about 25, uh, sorry, 125 million Americans, um, it has gone up about three times in that period of time. So that to me is where the stats bear out where it, yeah, the rising tide does lift boats over time, but it's an uneven tide, you know, clearly well, those at the close. top. It's, yeah. yeah. It's not even close. And that's always, that. that's why I always phrase it. Like, how are we going, how, how is society going to distribute the, the, the winds, so to speak? And so if, are we going to distribute the winds in a more egalitarian way? Like we're all contributing to it to varying degrees. And so are we, are those winds going to be distributed a, across the board or is it going to be one person gets a thousand percent of the of the spoils and another person gets two percent you know and so how are we going or two times you know like and so it's it's one of those it's a fundamental question as far as how to the point you made it on how you want to organize society because these types of things really play into the 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 downstream effects on how society sees itself and the other thing i'll point out with this and because i do want to you mentioned the state tax and i and i mentioned it well i do want to go into that because that's actually if you're talking about specifically the idea of okay there are more billionaires being created by inheriting money than earning money. The primary mechanism uh, on a first order, you know, on a first type of, uh, you know, like the, the first step uh, is, is the estate tax, you know, and the estate tax ex- exists in the United States. There's been a lot of machinations with it over the past 20 years and a lot of, you know, 20, 30, 25 years and a lot of arguing over it because there were some vested interests, a few thousand people <laughs> primarily that, that had been working to try to eliminate it or get rid you know, or reduce it and so forth. But that's the primary defense against vast accumulations of dynastic wealth. But the, the worldview piece I want to get into just briefly before we go there is just the idea of the, the, the concept of forever winners. And the, the, I think a lot of people don't really contemplate this, you know, in, in terms of it, it, there is a discomfort with the idea of, of progressive income tax. And it's like, okay, oh, well, you know, we don't want to punish people for, for doing well or estate tax. Hey, you did well over the course of your life. We don't want to punish people. But what I think is missed a lot of times with that is that we're what the, the type of system that we have, this market economy system, you don't get to be a forever winner in the same way that in sports, for example, you don't get to be the champion. And then you're just if you win the championship in 2024, you don't just be you're not just the champion forever after that. Like you got to go back the next year and fight again to try to win it again. And so the way these systems have to work, there has to be perpetual competition. That's that's what you need for a market system. So if you're a market person, if you're a free market person, a free enterprise person, then you need to defend and protect the idea of perpetual competition, which means that just because somebody wins this round in business doesn't mean that they get to stay the winner forever. So that's excuse me. That's why you'll have a measure of progressive income tax. You win, you win, you win. Okay, all right, we got to bring you back down and then you got to go win some more. Or the estate tax. You did a great job throughout your life. Hey, you know, excellent, great job. But we got to bring this down some. We're not taking it all as a, we as a society, but you can't start from here. You have to go back and start winning again if you want to still stay on that winner ledger. And I think that that concept is one, it's not presented to people in that way a lot of times where it's just like, oh, okay, well, once you win, you should just be able to sit on your laurels and say, hey, I, I won. And so I'm. this is all over with. And it's like, well, no, perpetual competition is built in to the system that we say that we want as far as markets. If you don't want that, then yeah, we can look at a feudal or system or an oligarch type system. And, and those are the systems where you have forever winners. But what we find in what history has shown is those aren't the, the types of areas where you have the innovation like we do in the United States and, and where, where improvements are, are constantly coming because what we're leveraging with those are the idea of capital and accumulated capital, but also the perpetual competition. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that you say forever winners, um, I wrote down here in my notes, um, there's also uh, an idea in this country about not creating forever losers. And I think this yeah. goes back to the That's founding the of the country. Um, and I thought of this as I was preparing for today, you know, because because I, I there's a good piece in one of the Wikipedia things I found because there was arguments for and against the state taxes. And a lot of the arguments against it came from things like, you know, you're saying is, you know, why should people be punished? 
who built something big and have already paid taxes along their lifetime, capital gains tax and, and, and income tax and all that. And I thought about it where, yeah, I mean, you're right about the forever winner would be like the grandchild of a, of a, someone from the Gilded Age today, you know, JP Morgan's grandchild or, or Cornelius Vanderbilt's great grandkids or something like that. But part of the founding of this country was to create a level playing field for each generation. So the idea was- Relatively, at again, least, because remember, they were looking at Europe where there were hundreds yeah, and hundreds correct. of years of forever winners. Yeah. So, so, so the idea is that, you know, everybody in America can start each generation with a chance, right? So that's yeah. one is, you know, allowing people and generations to just sit on wealth creates laziness and certain things that the founding fathers actually wrote about. Um, that, you know, the negative sides of perpetual wealth generation. And then, Does and then on the flip side, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. And on the flip side, remember coming out of Europe, right? There were things in England like debtor's prison. Um, debts would follow uh, descendants. So the thing is, is that in America, we're lucky to what the idea of probate is, you know, in each state where when someone dies, there's a, there's a legal process that any debts owed by the deceased need to get paid off first. Everything else goes to the heirs. Now there's loopholes created to get around all that, which we you know, don't have time to get into. But the idea is just that, yeah, once that debt is paid, if I die with, let's say, just hypothetically 20000 in credit card debt and I had a million dollars cash in the bank, technically the probate process is to, supposed to allow that the debtor gets the 20000 my family gets 980000 But my family is not responsible for the debt. My kids don't have to deal with the, you know, the negative credit uh, effects and all that. Yeah. So and that's why we, we, we kind of accept that on the one end, we like that part of as Americans, but we don't, we, we kind of take the rhetoric of the ruling class in a sense, you know, they're really wealthy that want to manipulate us into not seeing the side that perpetual um, wealth generation without any interruption can also long-term harm the society. Well, yeah, I mean, in another area where like that we see in our society where perpetual losing is not a part of it is bankruptcy. The whole concept of bankruptcy is one of that you can take a risk and if it doesn't play out the way you hope, then you're not just in, in the, in the in, you're not going to just be subjected to debtor's prison or just some kind of purgatory forever. You know, like you can yeah. you can get back on your feet, so to speak. And so. These things are built in. Again, a lot of times we don't learn and we're not exposed to the reason for it. But the idea is you want you want more activity, not less. And so that's what you risk when you start stacking a lot of money at the top and it never has to come back down. You risk that. And so one of the things that, that again, gets directly at this is the idea of an estate tax. And again, we've seen it pop up from time to time. In, in our discourse, in our political discourse, a lot of times you'll see uh, the Republican Party pushing to either get rid of it or make it make it so that people pay less, whether that be, you know, various mechanisms or and so forth. And you'll see the Democratic Party a lot of times saying that it, it needs to remain in place or that, uh, you know, trying to preserve it or something. So it has become a partisan issue that people view partisan in, in a partisan frame, not necessarily in a frame of, you know, notably, it, people don't view this in a frame of whether or not how, how this affects their own pocketbook a lot of times. And that's one of the benefits of making an issue partisan, because obviously if, if something like the estate tax was just based on how does it affect my own uh, pocketbook, then the vast majority of Americans would be in favor of it because the estate tax as it's set up affects very few, rel relatively very few Americans. You're talking about states that right now, I believe the number you said that you pointed was it's 13 million is, is the baseline exemption. And then after you get over that, they start looking at the estate tax. So, from the standpoint of the estate tax, though, um, do you what do, what do you see its present role? You know, and then also like what what do you take away from how historically it's existed in the United States in terms of maintaining the type type of homeostasis that we were talking about previously in an economic and pretend we haven't gotten there yet, but in in, in the political systems. Yeah, no, great questions. I mean, in, in preparing for today, I mean, there's some interesting stats I found. So as of, I'll start with kind of. The first question about today, and then let's get into some history. So, um, as of twenty or in twenty twenty one, there there was I guess the most recent uh, year for numbers two thousand five hundred eighty four estates in the United States fe paid federal estate tax. So when you think about that, that is definitely less than one one thousandth 
the 1% of the U.S. population. <laughs> no, I mean, a serious, like I was thinking like, wow, that's that little amount of people out of 330 million people or estates um, paid, paid estate tax. And it shows you like we're talking about, and it kind of confirms the outsized influence that this small group of Americans, plus I would say their, their cohorts, people like me in my industry that help them <laughs> manage all this stuff. <laughs> so I'm not innocent. Um, let me be honest. Um, but, but, you know, it shows us the outside influence that not only they have in lobbying, um, the government and the legal and financial system, but also those of us who benefit from, all the activity around their wealth. And that's something that, that, that I'm happy to get into later about the, the kind of the ecosystems and the economies within now our overall system that help promote all this. Um, yeah. Cause that's that, you know, family offices, the accounting and legal firms that, that help people deal with all this. So, but if you think about it, I'm just going to quote from the article that, that we're, we're basing our, our discussion on today. As I mentioned, the bottom 50% of Americans in terms of wealth, is about 125 million people. They collectively owned 1.1 trillion as of January 2023. That's how much it says here in the article. That's how much the eight richest people in the U.S. own together, based on current net worth and Forbes. So yeah. I think that's really the I choice. We, eight, yeah, eight, <laughs> eight people. Yeah. So so on 125 million Americans have the same net worth as. Eight. Let's let's be fair and maybe say eight families, right? Um, but but the point I'm really making is that it's not a right or wrong, right? This goes back to Sapiens when we did uh, the show on that book that there's no human rights in nature. We got to decide it's about our culture as Americans. How do we want to split the, this all up? It's and, a worldview, or how do we want how do yeah, you organize exactly. large societies? As you started our conversation with, like how and do we want to organize back to you before we go into history? But I just want to finish on this one with this current stat of the now. When, when thinking about just from a math perspective, so if 2,584 estates is less than 1% of the, oh, sorry, less than one one thousandth of a percent of the U.S. population, I took a look at, well, how much does the federal treasury bring in every year, specifically through the estate tax? It's averaged in the last you know, decade or two, around 2 to 3% a year. So I just thought, okay, so if you're looking for revenue, we, right now our, our, our budget deficit is almost 2 trillion we bring in 4.44 trillion and we spend about 6.18 trillion so again tweaking little things we got 0.001% of the population which is um adding 2 to 3% annually to revenue if you boost that up to 0.002 maybe we get another 5% of revenue coming in um without having to hit the majority of Americans with a greater um income tax sales tax property tax, all the other taxes that, like you said, the majority of the country experiences. Yeah. So, well, but it, I want to kick it back to you for the history part. Well, I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, I want a, a general re re reaction as well, though. Okay. And the piece that to me, and, and it ultimately does go to the question of like, whether you support the estate tax, whether you oppose the estate tax, it does, I think it has to be emphasized that this is not a question of or this, I should say what it is. This is a question of how you want to organize a large society and, and what values do you want to promote, pr promote in the society? And so what it happens to be essentially is that, and this is, I, I broke it down before. If you value things like markets, you know, market economies, uh, like representative democracies uh, or AKA republics that are based on elected officials, then the estate tax is a piece of that. And, and it, it's been observed over the history of the United States. If you don't have mechanisms like progressive income tax or estate tax, then what ends up happening is that, that you can't maintain those systems. You can't maintain those market systems. You can't maintain those, those, those representative democracies. So what we're talking about a lot of times with the estate tax is the preservation. More, A lot of people think, and you just talked about the, the estate tax from the point of a government raising revenue. But I think the bigger issue is the estate tax is a mechanism of the preservation of the system that we have set up. Now, if you want to change the system, if you want to go to a different system, one where, you know, hey, regular people, working people, don't worry about how the, the country's being run. Just let the oligarchs handle it. Then 
that's the type of situation that that's that we can we go that direction. And yeah, the estate tax is unnecessary at that point because we've decided to just let the landlords, you know, so to speak, you know, in a feudal way, just run everything and we'll just, you know, live on the land or, you know, be owned with the land, so to speak, and, and go for it. But if you if you think there should be some level of self-determination in each generation and each person, there there should be, you know, the ability to go start a business and be able to 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 do so in a way where you're not immediately swallowed up by whatever industries are, you know, that large businesses are already there. Or if you think that the people should have a role in choosing their leadership um, with free and fair elections and actually be able to get information on what's actually happening, not just being told what they're, they're, they people want them to know, then these are the type of things we have to do to prevent the extreme concentration of wealth and the extreme concentration of power. And so to me, when I look at the estate tax, it, it's that, it's that balancing you, 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 that we're trying to strike. You don't want to just take everything from somebody when they die. You, you, you like to create some type of incentive structure to, to, to accumulate, to, to continue to win. We want to continue to create an incentive for that. But at the same time, the, the balance has to be struck where we're not going to a society where the, the, you have the forever winner. And so therefore, Michael Jordan's kids are just our NBA champions now as well because he won. You know? and, 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 and so that's not the way that we have a system that's based on, you know, on people. As opposed to assets, so to speak. So, but I, I know you're you're chomping at the bit to get into the history. So, from a historical yeah, yeah. standpoint, no, but what, I, what stands I, out I, to you about I was that? intrigued because you made me realize like some somewhere I can find an island and create that country for myself, <laughs> where Michael Jordan's kids are also champions. Yeah, they're the um, champions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they inherited it. So, no, and I think it's just before we get into the history part. It's just again, I think you reiterate why it why this is dangerous for what we would consider stable societies. I think a lot of people- Well, just the society they, that they we say that we like. We say that yeah, we like no, markets. Exactly. We say I, that we I, like I, republics. Well, these are the types of things that have been put in place by founding fathers who experienced the other side. This is the stuff they were like, hey, these are the things we got to watch out for. So let's, let, let's address these right. types of things. Well, and, and, and the reason on the why is because what they found at those times is that once- generational wealth is co uh, concentrated after several generations. And, and the article alluded to this too, about just modern Americans as well. They found, because this is more about just human personalities. The first generation is usually connected to society because they created the wealth. So they probably came out of either poverty or middle class and they dealt with everybody. And think and, about and the way our- the wealth uh, a lot of time, you have to be, you have to have your, correct, your hand yeah. on the pulse of society. And, and, and think about just for us all here in America, right? We know that the children of billionaires and hundred millionaires generally are not going to public school. So they aren't as exposed to those of us in society, regular folks, people with pro, you know, up and down financial situations. They're in a cocoon with people like them. So after two or three generations of that, they're more concentrated emotionally in protecting their wealth and seeing those outside their bubble as somehow a threat to their wealth. So that's when you get conversations in the United States, like, you know, people like Bernie Sanders, who might say we need universal health care. Some people will say he's actually a communist for that. Whereas the definition of communism and, you know, European style kind of just having some safety nets are two different things. So I think that's important to understand in terms of what you're saying. Like, why is it, why would these guys be on here talking about allowing estates to just accumulate without any mechanism, like you say, to kind of spread that wealth back into society over time and every generation, at least a portion of it, to your point, not all of it. Um, I think that's why. And then if we go back into the history, I mean, the founding fathers pretty much um, gave us this, right? I mean, they understood that to have a society that stays within some sort of equilibrium, that doesn't get too top heavy and, and, and kind of fought top over on itself, like the European monarchies were doing at the time yeah. by the late 1700s, um, they not only needed to have things like the beautiful things they gave us, like the Constitution, um, the Bill of Rights, and also this concept of co-equal branches of government. So they, 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 they structured that that way. But they also understood, and this is something I'll ask you to chime in on, not only things like the taxes, we did have what's called a stamp tax in 1797 as a way to collect revenue after the death of one generation between another, um, but also the idea like corporations back in the founding of the country weren't to be in perpetuity for certain reasons. So that's where I'll, I'll throw back to you for that enlightenment. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, 
I, I was going to take it a little, little bit of a different direction. Um, right. And, you know, like, because I, I do want to keep us moving. Um, and I wanted to point out, and this is something that it's worth saying during this time. Now, granted, yes, to your point, at the founding of the country, and, and this, you know, it's a different world than it was then, but it was it was understood that, for example, corporations wouldn't be perpetual. Like, the the suspicion against mass accumulations of wealth and mass accumulations of power were present, as you point out, because their perspective, their context was one that came from the seeing what was happening in Europe, where you had hundreds and hundreds of years of dynastic wealth accumulated and how that created stagnant societies, didn't lead to innovation and so forth. And the places where you had more uh, more dynacism was where you had more activity happening and where you had innovation and things like that, whether it be places you look at places like, you know, like the Netherlands or something like that. Um, and then England taking a lot of place, a lot of, a lot of cues from there. But where I wanted to go with this is just kind of another structural point that I think is very important in understanding generally what we're talking about here is that, you know, the, 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 the market system that we have and, and capitalism, you know, which, I look at the, the what we're talking about here is a defense of capitalism and for capitalism to continue to m- keep moving. A lot of times, I think it's misunderstood in the fact that capitalism, r- r- the purpose of capitalism, the way it works is that the you, you invest capital and then you attract money to that capital essentially by selling goods and stuff. You invest in something and then you, you from that, you're supposed to get more back than your capital. That's why you invested the original capital is you get a return on investment. And so that that's money rising up through the system and money rising up through the system creates economic activity that is good for everyone. The issue that you run into with capitalism, which has been observed, I mean, this is, you know, Great Depression stuff. This is there's been observed several times throughout uh, throughout, uh, you know, the history of, of capitalism, basically, is that you need places where cap- capital will continue to rise to the top always, you know, like the, over the over the course of time, every investment doesn't hit, but, mo- you know, enough hit that. In, in capital rises to the top. If you do not have a mechanism to get that ca- some of that capital, not, you know, it doesn't have to be all of it, but some of that capital to get back down at the bottom so that it can rise back up to the top, to the top, then the system will break down. The, the economic system will break down because all again, all of the economic economic activity is happening during, and you call this the velocity of money, while, while the money rises from the bottom to the top. That's all the jobs that people are working. Everybody's taking a piece of the money as it goes back up, and then it gets to the top. And then if it stays there, you start drying up. And what we see in America right now, actually, what this has lended itself to, because we don't have a good, right now, our mechanism to push money back down to the bottom is, has been lacking for the last, let's say, 40 years, is America has just been borrowing money. And we borrow money. We borrow as a nation. We borrow money. We increase our, our our national debt from from you know whatever it be you know two trillion to thirty trillion over the course of that time. And the reason being is that the we've allowed the money. We keep allowing the money to accumulate at the top. And the only mechanism to put more money at the bottom so the economic system can keep going is to borrow it. And so, and I know you had something on that. I, I do want to move, but I I, it, it, I wanted to throw it to you on the the just. I know you had some some numbers that stood out to you as far as the borrowing piece and essentially. The, the, the people who say we have a deficit problem, which I agree, a debt problem, a deficit being each year how much we're in the red versus a debt problem, which is the cumulative amount, they're, bo- they're all right. But the concern, the issue that we have is that we're, we need that right now in order to keep our economy rolling, keep this system running where we have money flowing up through the system. If we want to correct that, what we have to do is stop having so much money stick at the top. So I'm just laughing because you're confirming why no one likes to pay attention to this topic. <laughs> no, for sure. But I, I do want to. You know, I, I did want to. No, I mean, it's appreciated. Your if anybody's made just, it this far, if anybody's made it know, this far, they deserve that piece of information. <laughs> We're not going to be on the algorithms with this topic on this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. No one's looking so, this stuff up. <laughs> just real quick, if you got a minute on it, um, just. Is there, do you see a way that, you know, like to, to make Americans care about this kind of thing, you know, like, or is this like, are we literally like the, the problem we run into is that the people who care about this are the people who have hundreds of thousands or millions or billions at stake and everybody else, the other 50% who, you know, combine for 1 trillion of wealth, like this doesn't affect them, you know, in, in terms of a first order and, and directly. And so it's really, it's much more fun to pay attention to, to books to burn or books to ban in schools or to, you know, sex scandals or whatever. That stuff is much more interesting than, than this, you know, to our detriment for this show. So well, <laughs> is there a way? Yeah, I was going to say, well, I was going to say, besides the billionaires and hundred millionaires who, who have it in their interest to lobby the government to not include these, you know, there are a few people on the fringe like us that some 
for some reason find this interesting. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we don't have the power to do anything except talk on a microphone about it. But um, but um, but no, I, I I do think so. It's very interesting um, to your point and and the points we've been making. We should all have a concern and and not and I want to say this too. I, not because pe- wealthy people are bad people or because they shouldn't have wealth and all that. And, and, and in fairness to the exponential number of billionaires created, uh, this is all coming off the heels of uh, a, a generation, literally 21 years of uh, lower than normal interest rates that created multiple asset bubbles and the longest bull market in, hist- in, in U.S. history in the stock market. So it's understandable that wealth has risen. I thought and everything it, was what, bad right now, man. What are you talking about? Oh, yeah, like, don't we need to make I'm, we need to make America great? I'm this on is, the wrong show. You're yeah, talk, yeah, yeah. you're talking about, man. <laughs> Things are terrible right now. It couldn't yeah. it couldn't be well, the longest. I think that that's that's actually an interesting thing because if the system were healthy in terms of our political class, um, we, we I wouldn't be saying that over this record last 20 years of bull markets and all that that the estate tax exemption was allowed to go from 675,000 to 13.6 million over that time. We should be, as a nation, that's what could help the deficit and say, okay, well, if we have this exponential growth in wealth, especially at the top tier, then if we collect some of that back and put it back in the treasury, we won't have a $35 trillion deficit. Um, and I recognize that and we'll have we a healthier start system. wars in the Middle East for 20 years and all that stuff while we're cutting taxes. So there's a lot of decisions that have been made collectively by us as voters by voting people into office who then did the bidding of people who are a lot wealthier than most yeah. of us watching this. So, but to get to your um, question about where do we go from here? So the, I felt like the, the article alluded to something. I think that's really important for us as Americans. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll quote here, cause it says, rather than becoming disillusioned with the idea of fairness, growing inequality, like if we see the inequality, inequality continue to grow might lead people believing more strongly that society is fair. And I realize because there's a lot of people that think of the Darwinism thing, like, oh, well, you either sink or swim in our society, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, um, and that theory goes that inequality is so great that it needs similarly great justification. This goes back to the way our minds work as humans. Remember, we talked about this in totally separate conversations. So do you see a solution to this though? It's interesting because where they're going with it is, um, Like that we will tend to manipulate our minds to believe that this explosion of billionaires doesn't necessarily reflect as much of an imbalance in in society or maybe their ability to manipulate like we've talked about governments and and the legal and and financial system to their advantage. It represents that they worked harder and the rest of us didn't. And I think that we are at risk for potentially making that a permanent thing because remember, like we talked about, the Europeans didn't look at the Africans as inferior until it became in the interest of the capital markets during slavery. And that well, and we've lived with that for hundreds of years culturally. Yeah. And, and this think, could be something similar too. And I think the living memory piece is what you did. That's the, the, the key phrase is that there were a there were generations of Americans who saw a more egalitarian system, a system where Society did well, and the spoils of society of, of coming from society doing well were broadly shared amongst everyone. You had the greatest middle, the society doing well didn't lead to the greatest explosion of billionaires ever. It led to the creation of the largest middle class ever. You know, and so, but there were still rich people. You know, there were still yeah. rich people, but the, the the it was that everybody was going up, and so instead you you had a middle class, a, the largest middle class being created in addition to wealthy people getting wealthy, and so. Once you once that once people that have seen that start not exiting society, so to speak, then you run into this situation like you're talking about where everybody looks around it like that's just the way it is. They don't appreciate the subtle things that are done as far as whether it's lowering the top tax uh, bracket, which was was a big, big deal, um, or whether it be, you know, playing with the estate tax or all the little subtle things that were done to balance the system, you know, to, I would say imbalance, but to balance the system and to bias the system towards large accumulations of wealth. And so they think that's the natural way for it to be. So, uh, but that's more of a point to say that there's an urgency now that we can get to the point where you start, people start thinking that this is just the only way that things could ever be. There is no other yeah. alternative than the the, the people, the, 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 the capitalist class, so to speak, of the billionaire class, taking all the spoils and leaving everybody else to fight over the other thing. Um, I think that 
It's the, the 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 answer to the question, though, is the most simple answer and the most the least for, the least fulfilling answer, so to speak. And that is that over the past, you know, however many years, uh, let's say 40, 50 years, you've just seen money have a greater influence in the fourth estate media, you know, in, in, in private ownership of media and you know, that will then you know present information in ways that benefits the few as opposed to, to from a societal standpoint, um, you know, like. You have, you'll see that, and then also the the concentration and the ability the, the ability to use greater concentrations of wealth directly in the political system. So, the ability to to influence and, and inform people from the perspective of from media co- corporations that are that are owned you know by the billionaire class, so to speak. That's something that we see now, and then also things like Citizens United. Citizens United did the Supreme Court decision that says, yeah, you know, the corporation is a person and can spend as you know can do what they want to do from a, uh, I guess everything but vote or or go to jail. Corporation can't go to jail, things like that. So, um, I would say a corporation is not a person, but the that that sounds those like I want to turn myself into a corporation then. Hey, go to jail <laughs> and I got like freedom it. of speech. This is awesome. <laughs> freedom of speech, yeah. Political. And I get a lower tax rate than an individual. <laughs> yeah. So, hold so on. wait a second. I got a new joke. So they, they got this transgender thing now. The last decade, where people like kind of not sure, and they call themselves they. What if I became like a transhuman to a corporation? So I think you of, might be onto something, man. Yeah, all right. I gotta figure that out. Better get your lobbying hat on. I told you, you I'll stay scheming, man. Stay it's a different kind of they, but yeah, I'll be a corporate <laughs> entity. <laughs> Identify as a corporate entity. I think like I think a Terminator because I can't be a human. But I'm, um, you know, so anyway. So, we'll but I think that, that it's it's, it's follow show. the money basically is <clears throat> is the answer. Like you got to break these, uh, the, break the, the at least do more. And again, this is not like the natural order way things have to be. These are decisions that were made, whether it be decisions on antitrust, um, and and ownership, the decisions on the responsibilities of media, decisions on court, decisions on the corporate the per- corporate personhood and and corporate donations and stuff. So, those are the types of things we have to look at. Um, and I don't know that Americans. Uh, rank and file will ultimately care about this stuff, but people who do recognize the threat will have to 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 participate uh, in the system. And and you know who recognized it? And I know you want to move. The founding fathers recognized it because Americans. Uh, it'll it'll be an issue when Americans are in the street with pitchforks because well, that's, that's what kind said, of what they had to fight yeah. a war. And so the yeah. goal would be to, to not have to fight a war, or you know, the people who realized it also were the people after the Great Depression, but they had to go through yeah. the Great Depression, and so it'll eventually happen. And it'll just be a matter of how much pain do we have to experience. And so right now we're kind of on the forefront saying, hey, if we can kind of get this under control, we don't necessarily go out and have to go through the depths. But we do want to get out of this topic. We'll, we'll catch you on the next topic after the break. All right. Our second topic today. Uh, we recently saw that Alexei Navalny died. Uh, many believe he was killed, uh, but he died in a, in a gulag in Siberia, in Russia. He was in custody uh, because for me, what many say was basically speaking out against the government and in Russia. And we wanted to comment on that, but also just in the context of the United States and the concept of free speech, which is often thrown around. Um, and in right now, even the U.S. Supreme Court is dealing with a case where the, the, the question of free speech and government restriction of speech on social media versus the companies, social media companies restrictions on speech and whether that constitutes a gov- the, the government acting or whatever. So just the concept of free speech and how that's built into our country, something we may take for granted, something we may misunderstood, but just your reaction uh, to Navalny and, and what happened with him. And then also in the context of, of what, what's hap- what our principle and concept of free speech is in the United States. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're, we're probably at this point a little late to the party. I'm not, we're not going to be the first people talking about um, uh, Navalny's uh, death. Uh, but I do think, you know, like I've seen just many other, you know, pundits and read in articles and things. I think this is it's a very symbolic. Um, I've heard comparisons to Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, you know, leaders of uh, the last hundred years uh, or within living memory for 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 many uh, who who tried to bring justice to the people of their nation um, against an authoritarian regime or at least you know, an authoritarian system, if we say, let's say Jim Crow in the United States. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those. And I think it's glaring um, just because of this continued um, type of activity that appears to come from the Russian government uh, in terms of how the fate of its political opponents and foes. And in contrast, let's say to a um, in contrast to, um, for example, 
how we deal with political dissent and political, you know, politicians in the United States deal with political foes. So I, you know, I do think it's it's relevant, and it's it appears to be um, just another notch on the belt of a long arc of this direction by the current Russian government. Yeah. Yeah, well said. I mean, like you said, this has been uh, discussed extensively, uh, you know, looking at it from the, the lens of Russia. I, I was actually more interested in the lens of the United States because oftentimes uh, we see, I think the concept of freedom of speech in the United States, at least amongst rank and file Americans, is, I don't know that it's understood completely. Uh, it's definitely taken for granted. Uh, and I say that because you'll see people citing free speech or complaining about free speech if they get, let's say, banned from Twitter or something like that. And it, and that's that's not what Navalny went through. Like Navalny, did, his issue wasn't that he got banned from social media or that he lost the job. Like he, he's, oh, he was working somewhere and then he came out and it spoke against the government and then he lost his job or he, he protested something and lost his job. Like this man was imprisoned and lost his life for speaking out. And the concept of freedom of speech at its core deals with that. It deals with the ability to speak out against the government if you're like... One of the key things about free speech is that you don't need freedom of speech to say things that are acceptable or popular or the current kind of status quo. If Navalny was saying the Russian government is great and, you know, like that, uh, I just want to do anything to support the Russian government. They never tell lies. Freedom. Of, he wouldn't need freedom of speech. He can say that as much as he wants, because that's the message that 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 regime wants out. The issue was that he was saying things that the, he was saying things that the regime did not want out. And they don't have the concept of freedom of speech to where you're allowed to say that stuff without criminal penalties and criminal, like, you know, without being put in jail, locked up, all that kind of stuff. So in the United States, that's what we have. Like, you don't see someone standing up against the government with words, you know, saying, hey, I disagree with what the government's saying or the, the government's not telling you the truth and dealing with that by going to jail. And so that's what the freedom of speech is that we have. And that's what we need to value. The concept that there should be no repercussions for anything anyone says, no commercial repercussions, no, you know, no, no benefits that, that, that a private company may give people that it could take away to me is preposterous. And it's an insult to the people who have, you know, whether it be Navalny or other people who have spoken out against regimes and then paid for it with their their life or you know in the case of Mandela just losing 30 years of their life you know or whatever so to me I think that's the that's what we have to we, we have to take example or use examples of this in the real world and and have an appreciation for what we have here in the United States when it comes to something like free speech yeah and I think um you know that's well said um one thing that kills me is I I I, I went and looked at the first amendment uh as a good reminder of how fortunate we are. I mean, that's what I mean. It's interesting, these these moments contrast. And, and you know, uh, it really hurts me to see in the United States, it's like you're alluding to, this false equivalency yeah. um, that that not only um, some Americans don't understand, like you're well put, that the, the concept of freedom of speech is really to protect us from the government yeah. um, coming down on us if we were to dissent. Not, remember, the freedom of speech goes many ways, right? A corporation has the freedom to say they don't want certain customers if they're not behaving in a way that is conducive to the environment. So just like if I'm in a bar and I drink a bit too much, I mean, you know, James, I've, I've joked with you about binge watching cops and Karen videos. A lot of them, if you just go look at them, are people that just drank too much at an airport or bar and they're rowdy. And and the patron of the, you know, the owner of the establishment is just telling the cops, I can't have this person here. They're just disrupting the environment and they have a right to not let that person in. So to your point on social media, if if you own a, a private company and you have people on your platform that are saying things that are against your your um, your standards and that have been in writing that people clicked on when they signed the terms of agreement, you have a right to ban them. That doesn't mean the government has a right to uh, uh, treat political dissidents like they do in Russia. And I think that's where to me the false equivalence is very dangerous because here in the United States, because we have people and, um, you know, from a former president who's, who's aspiring to be president again to um, people in the Congress and the Senate who say that people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th are the same as Alexei Navalny. They forget yeah. to mention that those people broke the law, trespassed and broke windows. They didn't just sit there and peacefully assemble like they did in the morning of January 6th on the ellipse when 
former yeah, president. Yeah, Trump the people speak. that were just out talking stuff aren't the ones that are that are getting criminal penalties. It's the people that Correct. vandalized and broke in and then started and, committing, you know, like other crimes. And that's actually, see, to me, it, now, one thing that, like, there, there is a difference between being someone who speaks out against the government and also committing crimes versus someone who speaks out against the government and then the government trying to find something to, to charge you with and, or, or trumping up something to try to, to, to charge you with. And that, that can be a distinction that that can be some, a thin line sometimes that it's hard to distinguish from the outside. But some of that, we just have to use common sense. Like if, if, if someone is going around and, and committing crimes unrelated to them speaking out against the government, um, then a lot of times we can surmise that, okay, well, maybe this person is a criminal who also happens to be speaking out against the government. Speaking out against the government doesn't mean that your other criminal activity is acceptable. You still can be, can, the government can go after you for that <clears throat> other criminal activity. But the, the, the idea or the, the act of speaking out against the government itself can't be made a crime. Or, you know, in, in the United States, an example of the, the, the government coming down uh, against someone for exercising political speech, disagreeing with the government. The most recent example of that actually would be the government of Florida and, and Ron DeSantis de de deciding to, to try to make Disney's life very unpleasant using regulations, doing all types of machinations to, 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 to retaliate against Disney because they, they didn't like that Disney made their displeasure known of some of the things that the government of Florida was doing. That's the kind of protection that freedom of speech is supposed to give you. And so I think well, now the, the, an issue that's before the U.S. Supreme Court right now is, is a pretty interesting as well. I'm not going to bore you from a legal context, but just basically the, the issue there is that the state of Florida and also Texas created laws saying that the social media companies have to are, are not allowed to ban people because they they say things that violate their terms and conditions. And what's interesting about that is that that the question before the Supreme Court is that, well, can the government make companies allow people to, 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 to get, to do whatever speech they want on their platform. And so that one is, that's yet to be decided. That's an issue that we're about to see. It, it, it appears as if it's going to be something, again, the government needs to stay out of it altogether. If, if a private company wants to say, you can do this and you, these are the terms of conditions of using my establishment, you have to wear pants or you can't say this, you can't say crazy stuff here. You can't insult these people. Which, of course, I don't think anybody would, would say that if a restaurant instituted that type of policy that, they, oh, no, you've got to let these people in that go around, you know, insulting people everywhere they go. That I don't know that people would have the same reaction. But nonetheless, this is an issue that's still evolving in the United States. And, that, you know, we're still asking different questions in terms of what's allowed and what's not under freedom of speech. But, again, something like this, beyond noting it and saying, okay, yes, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, it's terrible what happened to this guy, it's also a time to reflect and look back at what we have in our country and to, to appreciate it and maybe to understand it a little better and understand what makes it special and make sure that we, we deny the false equivalency and protect it. Yeah, and, I, and I'm glad you landed there because that's where I want to keep going is really the false equivalency. You, you're right. We don't appreciate. Think about it. We have entire economic ecosystems in this country that are built on dissent to the government. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a boater in South Florida. If you go on the water here in South Florida, there's a million flags that say F Biden, let's go Brandon, all that stuff. And I'm not saying that because I'm upset about it. I'm just saying that there's no flag you're going to fly in pup. You're going to find flying publicly in Russia saying F Putin. Yeah. You know, the ability I don't like if someone burns the American flag, I, I'll find that offensive. But the Supreme Court said that we have a right to dissent in America. Burning the flag is part of free speech. So that's the thing that comes along with being in a free country is that we got to accept that we got to deal with things that we might not like. A lot of people have an issue with transgender people having freedom of speech or blacks or gays, whoever, right? Well, but no, everyone I mean, gets more a right. broadly, a lot of people have a problem with people exercising free speech when they don't agree with what the person is saying. And yeah, that, that blows the whole point. Which is the whole point. <laughs> so but I think we can wrap from there. Uh, we appreciate our, everybody for joining us on this episode of Call Like I See It. Subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review it. Tell us what you think. Send it to a friend. Till next time, I'm James Keyes. And I am a corporation today. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you next time.